C.C. Michael, host of All Things Alberta, the podcast that knows that Alberta will be better off on our own, and we really don't care what people east of Saskatchewan thinks about it. Let's get after it. Welcome to All Things Alberta. It's been a long time. I'd call you peeps, but that's not cool. I'm just an old guy trying to look cool. Uh, welcome to uh, All Things Alberta. It's been a couple of months. Um, it's been a long time, and I appreciate your patience. Uh, why has it been two months? Because I was tired, and I needed to get off social media, and I needed to uh, clear my head because the world has gone crazy. And uh, and. I've, I've always wanted to be in a position in which I don't want to say anything too stupid um, because I don't want to come across as, as, as dumb. Maybe I am dumb. That's entirely possible. It's within the realm of possibility. But that being said, I, I try not to. The other aspect that I've noticed is that over well, since COVID hit, um, we've had just a plethora of, of like everybody and their dog is blogging or not blogging, podcasting. Um, and so uh, some are good, some are not so good. And what I've realized is that when you're watching the ones that are not so good, uh, man, you just don't, you don't, I don't want to look like that. I don't want to sound like that. Uh, and so I, I really want to have something intelligent to say before I get on and say it. I know some of, uh, some of you that follow me, you are waiting for me to blow things up like I always do. Uh, there was real potential for that, except, um, um, Today I was going to to do a podcast, and uh, and it was going to be on Black Lives Matter predominantly, uh, but it was going to be a monologue, and that's where that's where things can be fun for my listeners, uh, but but I I just hate those because uh, I ramble on and and then I get myself worked up, and then I inevitably say something stupid, and then and then you know my wife gets me into trouble. So I am so happy. So yesterday, let me give you a brief story. Yesterday, uh, we had a bit of a, uh, would it be a family reunion, a cadet reunion from days gone past, 30, from 30 years ago. Uh, some of my old cadet friends uh, got together and uh, did a Zoom call. And lo and behold, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, Michelle Robinson, came on. And she was a little late. Actually, you know what? I'm just going to bring... Michelle on now. Um, there we go. Michelle, do you hear me? I do hear you. Great to see you. Great to see you again. So yesterday, how this whole thing worked is, is uh, my mind wasn't really into the, into the Zoom call. I was, I was more worried about what I was going to say today on the podcast. And then, and then you showed up uh, late, not too late, but just a little late, uh, wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt and announcing proudly, I, I would say, that you were at the Black Lives Matter and Defund the Police March in Calgary. Do I have that right? Correct. And actually, my t-shirt said Black Trans Lives Matter. Gotcha. And, and so after, after uh, the initial shock wore off, um, <laughs> I, I then thought that it might be a good idea to, to actually, and I, you know what, and as the conversation on, so, so basically for, for my viewers, uh, Michelle and I go back a long ways, thir over 30 years, hey, Michelle? 
Yeah. And, and so uh, I know Michelle uh, well, we, we, and as it happens in life, we, we uh, have times in our lives where we fall away. I don't see it for 10 years and then pop, she comes back up and, and uh, there she is. And, uh, and, and, you know, things carry on um, as, as normal, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, but, uh, yeah, um, it was it, after the initial shock wore off and, and as the conversation went on, I remembered, uh, what an absolutely lovely person Michelle is and that I thought, you know what, uh, rather than having a ranting monologue, uh, why don't I have a conversation? So Michelle, I, I, yesterday I asked you, would you be so kind as to come on my podcast to be interviewed? Now I'm going to do a bait and switch here. Sure. You ready? I'm, I don't want to interview you. I want to have a conversation. Can we have a conversation? I'd love that. That's why I said yes. Okay. So as opposed to an interview where I am, uh, I, I'm, I don't know, I'll try to pick somebody from both sides of the aisle, Don Lemon or Tucker Carlson, uh, grilling, grilling you. Uh, in a conversation, we have a wonderful opportunity to uh, clarify for each other uh, and, and whatnot. And so that way, I have questions for Michelle. Michelle can have questions for me. If she needs some clarification, she doesn't have to. She doesn't have to uh, feel uh, obligated not to ask. In, in fact, I hope, I hope Michelle, you do ask. Okay. So, before before we get into it, let me introduce you. Okay. This is a bit lengthy, but it's it gives you an excellent, I think, an excellent understanding of where Michelle comes from. Okay. So here we go. Michelle Robinson is a facilitator for mending broken hearts, healing unresolved grief through the White Bison Wellbriety Training Institute. Did I say that right? Well, Wellbriety? Yes? Yep. Uh, she's a volunteer on the Calgary Police Service Indigenous Justice Committee. After telling me you were at a defund the police march yesterday, you know where I'm going with that one. You bet. Uh, the Volunteer Indigenous Liaison for 12 Community Safety Initiative that runs the only open to the public Indigenous book club. Chapters and chat for over three years. She's co-chair of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls and Two-Spirit Calgary Committee. She is the assistant producer for Calgary Animated Objects Society, CAOS, to encourage youth to go to post-secondary through opening an RESP and encouraging folks. You have an X there. Is that deliberate? Yes. Okay. Folks with low income to utilize the Canada Learning Bond. Could you, just before I go on, could you explain the X so that, because uh, I don't have a clue what that means and I'm guessing most of my listeners don't either. Sure. It's, it's really um, indicative for... Uh, trans acknowledgement really than anything so um, you know folks as you and I um, regular like what we think is regular but the truth is there's actually a lot of folks that identify as non-binary and trans and that is really to respect that gotcha okay uh, she's co-founder of voices a group advocating for the two-spirit and queer people of color in Calgary she is the Calgary Chair for the Indigenous Peoples Commission in Alberta. Uh, she was the first First Nation 
to run for City Council of Calgary and ran as the candidate for the Alberta Liberal Party for Calgary East April 16th, 2019. Is that true? The first First Nations person to run for council? Yes. Wow. Okay. Finally, she's a proud mom and volunteers in her daughter's activities. Michelle also has a podcast called Native Calgarian, which I just found out five minutes ago. So uh, I am interested in listening. Are you on iTunes or where do we find that podcast? Yeah, we're on that, Spotify, uh, Stitcher. Uh, I have a new YouTube channel and that, that actually came out of uh, COVID-19. Um, it was something we were meaning to do and never did. And then I do have a website, uh, nativecalgarian.com. Uh, and then as well, uh, people can donate if they want. I don't have t-shirts or anything. That's, I guess, next on my list. Gotcha. Um, so you're a busy person. Um, well, where to start? Um, where to start? One, okay, so how about we start like this? Um, I'm going to say this publicly because I, I believe that we are in one of the most, in my lifetime, I'm almost 50, uh, so in my lifetime, I, I believe that we as a society are the most polarized we've ever been and uh, unhealthily so. I've said on more than one occasion, I don't know if I've said it, well, I don't know what podcast we're on anymore. I think this is number 17, but uh, I believe somewhere in my past 17, um, I, I, I've made the argument that I believe that the United States is on the verge of civil war. Uh, and and I, I don't see any way out of that or around that. I, I honestly believe in November, it doesn't matter who wins. Uh, the proverbial crap is going to hit the fan. And, uh, and, and I know for a fact that I don't want to see that. Uh, I, I don't want to see it for the United States. I don't want to see it for Canada. I don't want to see it anywhere. Uh, but the idea was, is that uh, if I truly believe that we, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with this, Michelle, when, when it comes to uh, the conversation is, as I want our listeners to understand how diametrically opposed I think you and I are on probably every subject. Like, I don't think there's a subject anywhere where you and I are going to go, ah, agreed. I, I don't think there is one, which, which is uh, great insofar as to demonstrate that two people that come at things from such a different point of view can sit down for an hour. And as I've said to you privately, and I'm going to say it now, I hope this turns into one of many conversations that we have moving forward. Because, man, I've got a lot of questions for you. Uh, I want to have a conversation. I want to understand better. But I also want to offer some pushback, but in a way that uh, hopefully, uh, coming from my perspective, I can maybe clarify to you and maybe some of your listeners that, that um, just because we, are, we stand on opposite sides doesn't mean that we're enemies. Because I certainly do not look at michelle robinson as my enemy not a chance she's too wonderful for that um so with that being said michelle uh where do i start um uh as examples of of uh, how opposite we are um well you went to black so do you would you say that you are in favor of black lives matter organization 
Yes. And I would be a no. Um, would you say, oh, defund, you believe, and I want to get some clarification on this, but you obviously believe in defunding the police, yes? Yes. Right, and I would be no. Um, you ran as a liberal in the last election, so you would vote liberal, yes? I, I do. Right, and I, I would not. Um, how else? Oh, would you call yourself a federalist or a separatist? Uh, I would call myself a decolonizer. Ooh, decolonizer. Well, we'll need to, you, we just might have found something that we agree with. I want to explore that later. I am a separatist. And uh, so when I say separatist, uh, I, I want Alberta to get out of confederation. And uh, believe it or not, well, it's not hard to believe. I think, I think you know my heart a little bit. And so when I say this, I, I think you and I can agree on the fact that um, I, I am sick and tired of Indigenous people being wards of the state. And I think it's uh, the Indian Act, which is still in act today, is a racist document. And I want our Native brothers and sisters to be equals in everything. They, they, I'm tired of seeing what I see on, on reserves. Would, would, you, uh, would you, and I agree there? Well, we agree that, um, I, I think there's a, a bigger conversation there that we both want equity. That we agree on. Okay, and, and we'll have to come back to equity because I, I cringe a little at equity. I would say equality. Do you? Do yeah, you equality. I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. I, I agree with equality for all. I, I do. I, I stand very strong on that. Um, so what, what else? I am a Christian. Are you a Christian? No. Right. So um, as, as people, so my worldview is vastly different than yours. Would, would we agree to that? No, I, I would disagree with that. You would disagree with that. That's interesting. Okay. Um, all right. So I would say regardless, I think we've established though that, that uh, you and I are, are pretty far apart on issues. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so um, there you go. I, my phone is doing something weird. Of course. Sorry about that. We had a land. We got a landline put back in. See, we thought we were smart getting rid of our landline, saving money through you know just using our cell phones, and then actually trying to hold conversations on cell phones that end up dropping all the time is super annoying. So, um, so yeah, we uh, and then then we got a landline and phones, and the phone that ended up in my office likes to malfunction and do weird things. So um, I think I'm just gonna. So you know what? That's another thing we agree on. I have a landline. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Uh, yeah. <laughs> more things change, the more they stay the same. Yep. Okay. So I think we've established that uh, we are, are pretty opposite in almost every way. And so, um, I, like I said before, I want this to be a conversation. So please feel free at any time to jump in and challenge anything. I might say, ask for definitions. I think I'm, you're going to find when I ask you a lot of things, I'm going to ask you to, to define a lot of things because I don't want to talk past one another. And, and so therefore uh, it, it's, it's important to, uh, to get our terminology straight. Okay. So 
Um, we're 15 minutes in. I'm going to use the next 45 minutes to try to clarify uh, a few things. Um, can you start with why you support? Okay, let, let's start with this. You and I can both agree that black, the statement, black lives matter is true. Yes? Yes. Okay, so I, I, I'm there too. I, black lives matter. Yes. I believe Black Lives Matter as an organization or a foundation, which is found on the website, is, is um, to be kind, uh, not a good organization. And so therefore, when I see people like yourself, who I have uh, a lot of respect for, when I see people like you who do support Black Lives Matter as an organization, I need to ask the obvious question, why? Right. So thanks for asking that question. To me, it um, is statistically proven that uh, black lives are not given the same justice as non-black lives. Um, unfortunately, as an Indigenous person, our lives are either even lesser on that um, ladder. So, you know, there's Indigenous, and then there's Black, and then there's Immigrant, and then there's White. So there's an injustice uh, in general when it comes to both the U.S. and Canada when it comes to our lives and, and how they um, stack up in the institutions that we have. And so, okay, um, number, can you expand on the evidence? And, and if we can keep it, I, I guess it doesn't matter. Black Lives Matter to me is, is largely a, a US organization that has, has spread as everything from the U.S. tends to do, um, has spread elsewhere. Um, when you say statistics show, can you can you cite any statistics to help people like me understand? Because I I think there's uh, what's that expression? There's statistics and damn statistics, and and anyone can make statistics say whatever they want. And yeah, so I wish I wish I could just make these ones up. Um, if anybody, and I, I try to stay more Canadian based because um, I think that it's more relevant, frankly. Uh, so yesterday during our event, we actually had uh, defund.ca as a, you know, kind of a, a point in Canada that we could contact our city councillors and give some information about certain things. Now back to what you were asking about the stats. So if you look at the stats of uh, disproportionate rates of people in jail, it is always disproportionately Indigenous as well as Black. And I mean, that's a, something you can get from Stats Can, that's something you can get from Corrections Canada. I don't really think we can dispute that. Uh, Kate, and, and I would, I, I don't think that is disputable. However, I would argue um, that it's, it's more difficult the, the situation is far more nuanced than just going blacks and natives are improportionately in, in prison. Kind of like, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I don't know if this is a good comparison, but um, well, now that I've opened my mouth, I've got to use it because otherwise, okay. So there's a disproportionate number of white basketball players than there are black basketball players. Um, does that mean that the NBA and the NBA teams are being racist towards white people? Or like, is that a systemic problem 
in the NBA or at the NFL. The NFL has 80% uh, blacks compared to whites. Um, does that mean that the NBA and the NFL are systemically racist against whites? I think both in, you and I would agree with the answer. The answer is no, right? Um, well, no, I, I think that they are systemically racist. So we do disagree there. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, in what way, in, in what way? Maybe, maybe we need to go there just to make sure we're all on the same page and I'm understanding you correctly. In what way would you say the NBA and the NFL are systemically racist? Geez, where do we start? I guess, um, I guess if you look at our sports in general, um, you know, it, it's based off of privilege. And that's, that's part of the problem is that who ends up in these positions are uh, people who can play sports. So for example, um, my, my daughter in Calgary East, here we are trying to get her to play um, volleyball and basketball. And if you don't, you know, try out and make the cut, then you don't get to play. So, you know, it does come down to, you know, whatever organized sports infrastructure is available to even start a child and then, you know, eventually an adult's um, ab ability to even play. Okay. And so uh, going back to the... and. Because I thought I was making a facetious argument, but you're you're yeah, actually so, yeah yeah no so like and then take that to the next step further of education so like and that's one of my jobs actually is talking about um, systemic racism within education so almost every single one of the players that we're refer referencing played some sort of like post secondary education in a college or a university and being able to get into a college and university is is an example of privilege actually um okay uh i'm still i'm i'm still not making the connection do you, okay so so help me understand how the nba and the NFL are systemically racist because they then go into the universities or colleges in order to draft who it is that they want them to play for. Uh, so anyone who's not in a post-secondary education obviously is not going to ever be looked upon. So when you start realizing that you know this is a, a conversation of privilege, then then that's where you get systemic racism. These institutions were created to exclude black people and to exclude indigenous people. So, so for us to be able to even access them has been problematic, especially here in Canada. Uh, you know, this is the first generation that we're just able to go into an institution, but even when we're in there today in 2020, we still experience uh, systemic racism. Okay, well, my, my initial pushback, I guess, would be that when you have, it, it seems to me with the argument you used and not, this isn't a Canadian context, this will be the US context of, of the specifically the NBA and the, and the NFL, is that if, if they're all drafted out of the colleges, which I would agree they are, um, you still have 80% blacks in both, of those, in both of those leagues. They are overwhelmingly black athletes. Yeah, uh, especially because uh, they're only seen as slaves. Remember, the, in the context of Canada and the U.S., 
these are inferior human beings according to the institutions of education. So the only thing they're good for is athletics, which is why they get picked. And because they don't have the rights in a lot of these sports that we think they do, of course, it's a lot easier to exploit them for their athletic ability. I'll be honest, Michelle, I don't even know where to go with that. That uh, something, <laughs> something that I might have to come back to because I, I, I don't, um, yeah, I, I, I'm at a loss for words. I, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know how um, you've come to that conclusion. Um, because yeah, I, I would argue. a book to consider. Uh, uh, so a book that I read because uh, where you and I grew up, there was a, a strong hockey culture. And mm -hmm. I felt that it was very unhealthy at the time. So there was a really great book that came out called Crossing the Line by Laura, Rob Laura Robinson. So we're not related, but uh, it was a really great book that really talks, uh, talked about the toxicity of uh, sports in general. And it also talked about how privileged allowed certain things. So, for example, Eric Lindros was, uh, you know, constantly charged with sexual assault. And if that was anyone else, crossing the border would be problematic. But because of the power that these sports teams have working with the Canadian government, and the U.S. government and their immigration system, they were given uh, special privileges in order to play. So that it really talks about the, those systemic, um, you know, privileges that come within these sports. So, you know, I would even recommend to your viewers that they start there. Okay, uh, say that book again. Uh, Crossing the Line by Laura Robinson. Okay, okay, so here, here's a, a, a question though, is, is that just because there are, would you say that, that it doesn't matter where you are in society, whether you are on, like, I, I live close to a, a couple of native reserves, um, that the same the same favoritism the same privilege happens everywhere including it, it doesn't matter what organization or what nation or what it doesn't matter what area of life that you're involved in there's always somebody something somewhere that has privilege would, would you agree with that yep and so when when you and those Okay, so I, I'm always trying to be careful when I use the words you. When you, Michelle, you, when you say this, um, I, I want to be careful. I, I don't want to set up straw men. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't want, you know what I'm saying? Like, I want to be as absolutely fair to you as possible, always. And so if, if I say something that's not right, please correct me. I, I don't want to say anything that's not, that's not accurate. Um, what, what is the solution then when it doesn't matter when it's shown time again, that it doesn't matter in what situation you're in, there are always those that are privileged and those that are under, what we'll call it underprivileged. What is the solution? Yeah, so from an Indigenous point of view, which I'm a lot more, you know, accustomed to speaking about, we've actually given lots of solutions. In 1996, we gave the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples that had over 400 recommendations. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission had 94 calls to action, and now we have the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Inquiry Report that has over 231 calls to justice. So it's not from a lack of giving information about how to solve it, it's just that we lack political willpower from those involved to 
you know, acknowledge these as possible solutions and then implement them. So that's really, I think, where the, my problem is where, you know, we have the solutions, but systemically, we don't want to implement and create the um, answers. And I mean, even if you took out racism, systemically, poverty is imposed, and that's done by government institutions onto the people. Uh, it's done by all institutions onto the people, but most people don't want to, um, you know, do that self-reflection to determine what it is that the institutions that they're involved with and how they are contributing to systemic racism, systemic injustice, systemic oppression in any way. So to me, the answers are available. We just don't have people in positions of power that are willing to implement them. So I would, I would, um, if, if I'm hearing you right, I think you and I would agree on a lot of things. I, I do think that when it comes especially to the indigenous issues, uh, um, by and large, uh, politicians are scared to death of touching the issue. Um, that would include your beloved, and this is a shot at you, Michelle, uh, your beloved Justin Trudeau has failed miserably on this topic as I knew he would, but regardless, um, I think, I think uh, that, that politically speaking, uh, the native issue is, is a, to, a hot potato and, and no one wants to touch it. And, and I think, and it, boy, oh boy, it, it grieves me. I need you to hear me. It grieves me to say anything positive about Jean Chrétien. I, I don't like doing it, but my little research that I've done into the indigenous issues, he was the last person in 1980, I believe was the year, as the, uh, what was he called back then? They're not still called the Indian Affairs Minister or something like that. Are they still called that? They just renamed it to Indigenous Affairs, but I still call him Indian Affairs. And I still call all of the institution Indian Affairs because ultimately I'm still under the Indian Act and I'm still labeled an Indian ward of the state under the Indian Act. So I have no problem using that, but it actually has become a bit of an N-word and I encourage your, your listeners to understand that. Uh, you mean, you mean, so if I were to use the term Indian, that's not a good thing? Yeah, only because we now know to use better language. So like there's over 634 nations in Canada alone. So when I, I identify as Satu Dene, um, it's better to call me Satu Dene than it is to call me an Indian. So uh, is it okay if, if I just refer to, to you and others as Indigenous though? Like, because- 100%, I, yep. I can't possibly keep up with, I, I barely remember my kids' names half the time, never mind uh, 624, yeah, I think you said uh, different nations. Okay, so where was I going with this? Uh, oh, uh, Jean Chrétien in 1980, I believe, tried to do, he, he wanted to fix the Indian Act. He wanted to do something significant with the Indian Act. Now, I don't know what all those were, but I did talk to, I, there's a couple of uh, uh uh, native individuals who who I work with, and and I've had conversations with them, and I asked them specifically about uh, that that time period, the 1980 when when John Kirchner tried to tried to make some changes, and and I I asked them why didn't the natives get on board? Because everything I've read looks like the natives were the ones that went whoa 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 no you don't no you don't we, you just leave us alone, and. And as I said to you to open the show, I find, I find the Indian Act to be a racist document. I hate it. I absolutely hate it that our 
our uh, uh, indigenous neighbors are wards of the state. I would not want to be a ward of the state. I would, I would tell the government to get stuffed. You're not the boss of me. You're not, you're not my dad. You know, go away. Like, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so I find it, I find it extraordinary that back in 1980, somebody tried to do something about it and it's natives themselves that, that, that squashed it. And when I asked the two individuals why that was from what they understood, they said that uh, basically they gave the old proverb, uh, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Um, they, at least in 1980, they knew what they had. And it, it, while it wasn't perfect, it wasn't, I, I would argue it's not even good. Um, it, at least they knew what it was and they were afraid of the changes. And I look at that and go, if that's the mentality, then how can anyone move forward if you're afraid of what comes next? Especially in my mind, uh, you're never going to get, well, I don't want to say never, but, but now's the time. At what point, and this is why as a separatist, I go, yay, like let's, let's get on board with, uh, uh, I don't know what the correct terminology is, partner with, recognize. I, I don't know what the non-insulting language is, but I mean it well. And I know, Michelle, you're giving me the benefit of the doubt. I, I don't want natives in Alberta or anywhere, but especially in our own backyard here. I don't want natives to be second-class citizens anymore. There's no reason for it. And, and so I get super frustrated when I hear that natives themselves are scared to death of change. What's your response to that? Sure. So I guess the important thing to start with is to understand that because of the historical relationship that we have from the Indian Act that continues to today, that um, typically we've always been on the losing end of every negotiation. When we talk about stolen land, it's because we did make treaties and we did talk about equality, but those treaties were broken under the Indian Act. And just to give you more fuel to your fire, um, it was the Liberals that instituted the original Indian Act. Um, way back in 1869, 69. And, um, you know, so a lot of people don't understand the gravity of why that's important. So the Indian Act um, allowed the government to, you know, take all of their Northwest Mounted Police and RCMP, shoot our dogs, um, you know, force us onto small, tiny reserves. So we have 0.2% uh, of the land now. And it was supposed to be equal. So it should be 50-50, but it's not. So as a result, we've been forced onto these tiny res reserves from the Indian Act. And if we abolish the Indian Act, then that 0.2%, then we have no land, as opposed to what we negotiated with, through treaty was 50-50 and equality. And, th and our idea, and I, I actually, I think I'm even misrepresenting that. To us, 100% of the land is 100% yours and mine. And that's a really hard concept for non-Indigenous to understand because we survey and have plots of land and we pay a mortgage and that's our land. And from our point of view, and, and this used to be the case not that many generations ago, is that if you were a farmer and you were you know, making your um, farmland, whatever you made it, if I was a native just passing through, I would be able to set up camp as long as it didn't interfere with your uh, way of life. Uh, set up camp for whatever I needed a week or whatever, and then continue on my way. 
today, uh, farmers will shoot and kill us for doing something like that. And, and that's the problem. That's, that's against treaty. We should be living equally as long as we don't interfere with each other. And that's not what's happening anymore. I don't know if that at all encapsulates what you're trying to ask me, but ultimately the Indian Act, if we were to abolish it today, um, as natives, we have no rights. Um, th this land that we had was supposed to be equal, it was supposed to be shared equally. Uh, today, the resources that come from our lands are never, um, you know, equally given to us. And then the damage that's caused by it, we get to live with 100% of those ramifications. So if we get rid of the Indian Act, that's one of the only legislation that really allows some people some rights. And, um, and ultimately, like you were talking about separation, it's because of the Indian Act that there's like a legislative framework that internationally is recognized as Canada to exist. Because really, it's an imposed idea brought here. Kind of the way um, South Africa was imposed as a British colony or India a British colony so if we about like if if Alberta got its way and separated and broke away from Canada that actually all the land would default to natives according to the legislation recognized by the UN so in a lot of ways a lot of us natives are like yeah you guys should separate let's work harder on that because all of the you know oil sands would default back to the Dene all of the um Cree land would go back to Cree and all the Blackfoot territory would go back to the go back to the Blackfoot. So all of the settlers who have made cities and towns and municipalities, and we're seeing this in Cardston right now, are very nervous. Like, well then what will the natives do? And so you're introducing something that I haven't heard before, um, which isn't which isn't uh, um, out of the realm of possibility by any means. However, I, I do want to offer a little bit of pushback, and that would be that according to the Indian Act, as, as I have read it, and then I've also seen an interview, and I referenced, uh, I was looking back in my notes to the last show I did two months ago, uh, I referenced a, an interview um, on TVO uh, about the Indian Act. There was, a, there was a book written called 21 Things Everyone Should Know About the Indian Act. Are you, I'm sure you're familiar with that, yes? Yeah, so I run a book club, and I got to update my bio because it's been over four years now. And one of our next books, not this book club, but the next book club will be uh, that book by uh, Bob Joseph. It's a it's a wonderful book because, and I think every Canadian should it should be a part of the curriculum actually. But as we know, Jason Kenney is absolutely opposed to any Indigenous education whatsoever in our current framework. So um, unfortunately for Albertans, they are unaware and unless they are willing to read a book, which I read the most horrifying statistic and obviously you do not qualify under it, but it was something like 80% of folks never read a, a book after post-secondary education. And I, I couldn't believe that stat. Um, I, I can't believe it for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that like, I, I don't know about you, but I'm glued to my phone now. and between news articles or information that's going out there. I'm constantly reading something online. So yes, that may not qualify as a book, but anyway, uh, my book club, we're gonna be talking about that book and discussing it with uh, regular settlers like yourself. And uh, hopefully some folks will learn some things about it. Okay, and so one of the things that I took away, like I, I had already read 
significant parts of the of the Indian Act before I, I stumbled into that interview. Uh, but even then, when I read the like when I was watching the interview, it was it was still it's still eye opening to me. And uh, but one of the things that really stood out to me was the fact that um, under the treaties, I can't speak intelligently intelligently about about uh, like I understand the the situation for natives in BC is vastly different than that in Alberta. Yeah. Um, but under the treaties in the Indian Act, the the natives do not own it because they are wards of the state. The natives don't own their own land. Like so, right. so uh, the Tutina or uh, the Masquiches. If I said that right, I hope I said that right. You did. Um, that that all these all these native reserves aren't owned by the natives. In fact, the land is still under its, its federal land. It doesn't even belong to the natives. And I found that shocking uh, that, that they don't even own the land. But then it makes sense because if they're wards of the state, then, then why would wards, like I, when someone said to me that they cannot, natives don't privately own their houses, they don't own the, own the land, the plots, the whatever, that never made any sense to me until I read the Indian Act and went and, 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 and understood the treaties a little better. And then as being wards of this, like this whole situation, that's what I mean. I don't understand how natives would not want changes to this. This is insane to me. Well, but we have worked really hard at changes. So for example, uh, my aunt is one of the first lawyers that um, ever got a law degree. So basically the way the law was set up is that you could uh, disenfranchise yourself as an Indian. Um, you know, obviously all that racism still continues, but regardless, you can be considered a citizen and uh, go to university if you had the resources to be able to do so. So my auntie was one of the first lawyers. And I mean, not over the last 40 years, you've seen the amount of uh, lawsuits that have happened as a result of Canadian law and they almost always go in our favor whether it's a land claim or whether it's discrimination through the Indian Act but yet as it, you pointed out there's been no government has that has done any substan substantial change to really correct a lot of that so really these lawsuits are like a, a piecemeal and because the Canadian government has unlimited access when it comes to resources for lawsuits I mean, we're talking about, you know, $5 million cases that are, we, you and I would agree as taxpayers should not be, um, you know, giving to the government to just basically fund a bunch of lawyers to stay in court and fight natives. But that is the reality that's been the reality since Canada has existed. So, um, you know, it, it's not from a lack of pushback and it's also not a lack from uh, work done in reports and such, giving the very clear you know, solutions to these issues. So the problem is, is that we end up, whether it's liberal, conservative, even the NDP, there's not a single colonial party that has the best interests of natives in, in sight. And as a result, all of their uh, solutions are never really directly as a from coming from our reports, but they're, their, their personal view, their personal spin on it. And that's why, whether it was Christian or Brian Mulrooney, it doesn't matter. It, every single uh, non-Indigenous person who has the power to do something looks through it with a non-Indigenous lens. And of course, then we reject their solutions because they don't understand us. Then, then the next obvious question will be how do, how 
How do we stop uh, talking past one another? And and the other, I'll, I'll tell you a brief story of a of a friend of mine, an old friend of mine. I haven't talked. I can't even call him a friend anymore because I haven't talked to him since university. But uh, I, I appreciate this man more than I think he knows. He's probably forgotten who I am. Uh, but I'll never forget him. Uh, Toby was his name. He was a uh, he was a uh, uh, a big native down at uh, Lethbridge. He was attending the University of Lethbridge when I was down there. He was very politically active. In fact, I, I'm, he, uh, he went with Ralph Klein to uh, Europe, to Germany. I remember seeing a, a picture of him kind of in the background uh, as, and he was in his, his he was a, a black book. And so he had his, his uh, headdress on and he toured around Europe with, with Ralph Klein. I mean, and, and he was heavily into indigenous affairs and, and wanting the betterment of his, his own people. And, and I wanted to understand better where he was coming from. And, and, uh, and so him and I had, had some great conversations and I wish I could, I could, uh, get, get back in touch with him. But, uh, I remember sitting down with him one day and this was an honest question. And Michelle, you've known me a long time and I, I tend to, I tend to be blunt. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't, sometimes I mean to be rude and blunt, and sometimes I'm just blunt, and I, I don't mean to be rude at all. However, um, in this case, I, I, I was asking a simple question, trying to understand his position, because I believe at the time, this was in the mid-90s, and there was more, there was more uh, Indigenous affairs stuff going on and negotiations, and again, I, and, and I don't remember anymore what it was all about, but I did ask Toby the following question. He was really angry at me after I asked this. Uh, but I didn't mean anything by it other than here's my question. Maybe you can help me understand. Why is it that when it comes to, it seems like when it comes to negotiations with, with, uh, native groups is natives always start with the impossible. And what I mean by what they start with the impossible. And this was my question back then is you start with give us our land back. And, and I go, okay. Uh, other than saying that's not going to happen because, because how, like, you, you know, how, what's that expression? The, the bird's already flown the nest, man. Like uh, we can't get the bird back. So um, we're not going to ship off 28 million people back to Europe because I, I didn't grow up in Europe. I'm not a European. I, I grew up here. I'm, right? Like I grew up here. Uh, I've got no other place to go to. Um, and then, uh, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this as a liberal supporter, but you've basically got the Trudeau government opening up the, just everybody welcome, come on in. And I'm like, well, that's really interesting from a native perspective. Uh, we've got a, we've got a Laurentian elite white guy throwing open the borders going, Hey, everybody come in. Uh, what, what, I mean, how does this at all relate to natives and, and their land issues Their you know what I'm saying? And so anyway, he got angry at that. And what did he say? Because what did he say? I, he was angry. He stood up and he was a big guy. So I was a little worried. I thought oh, I'm going to get punched for that question. I didn't mean it, <laughs> but, but uh, he stood up and he leans over and he says, with a look in his eye, he says, because 
in order to get anything from you white bleepity bleeps, we have to start with asking for the impossible. And then he left. And we never did pick up on that conversation. And by the way, we did, we, I mean, we had a great uh, relationship after that, after he cooled off. Uh, but where was I going with this? Oh, the, the fact of the matter is, is how do we fix the issue? Like, I, people in these major cities, even where I'm out, I'm, I'm, I'm out in the country here, uh, not too, too far away from a native reserve. Uh, and, and I don't know how to fix this issue. Yeah, I think, um, so for you and your viewers, uh, there's a free university education through the um, University of Alberta. I can't remember if it's an eight or a 12 week course um, or, or how it works, but I've heard nothing but good reviews. It's free. And if at the end of it, you pay your 60 bucks, you can even get a certificate saying that you took it. And uh, for a lot of the public servants, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission call to action 57 is for all public servants to get an Indigenous education and anti-racism training. Um, because ultimately what's happening is you have two worldviews that are, are crashing, right? So if we can learn about each other, and I would argue that as Indigenous people, we've been absolutely forced and raised to, you know, no Christianity, no Christian uh, ways, no British law, and no British ways. So it needs to shift a little more the other way, where for the first time, Indigenous and Canadians are hearing each other. And unfortunately, with the education system you and I were brought up, there isn't that education. So the, I'm bringing up this free U of A course because it's really critical for us to really understand each other and where we're coming from. Um, and, and bless Toby's heart for not punching you because then that would have really been awful, but I, it actually shows the resilience and the strength that, that as Indigenous we face racism every day, but we don't act upon it violently, even though I sometimes wonder how we don't, because I was raised white. And when you're raised white, you believe violence is the answer. And, and one of the things that you said that I wanted to point out was that you said, if we give the land back, what are we gonna do? Ship off, you know, 2 million people back to Europe. Well, here's the thing. We've never felt that way. Um, a lot of Canadians play that narrative and that propaganda is out there. And yeah, there are a few Canadian or uh, Indigenous that are like, yep, screw you guys, go off back to wherever you came from. However, um, and, I, and I'll tell you, this is the basis of our relationship. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually a daughter of the Mayflower through my dad. My dad's white. And uh, what happened when the Mayflower first came here was that these people were sick and starving. And our people nursed them taught them how to live here so that they could live, survive, and then continue their life. And we believe, our ancestors that originally met the folks here believe that this isn't our land to keep, it's our land to share. So the truth is, if Alberta were to separate, and you wouldn't see a huge native out uprising forcing all the you know, people off the land like we've seen in South Africa, and it wouldn't be like that. Um, we believe in honoring our ancestors and honoring their original vision of when we first made treaty. And as a result, you know, everybody would be welcome to stay here. It's just that the, you know, wealth distribution would change dramatically, obviously. And we would actually see um, equity or equality, as you like to, you like that word. Um, you know, and that's, that's what we want. That's ultimately what we want. Um, and I'm not 100% certain that the Canadian military 
would be a-okay with um, them losing the CFBs as well as the Indian land, right? So I don't know the, what the white settler non-Albertan response to Albertans would be. Let's put it that way. So it wouldn't be the natives you'd have to worry about. It would actually be, would this be the first time NATO decided, fuck yeah, I was, pardon my language, but you know, Trump and, and whoever the prime minister is are on the same page and are gonna invade Alberta. And then you guys get to live like the way natives have for the last 150 years. So <laughs> that could be, I don't know. So, you know, I, I would actually say that you should be mar far more afraid as a separatist of the Canadian government as well as uh, their partnership with NATO. Because how honestly can Alberta have, you know, that full separation? Because our internet is connected. Um, you know, there's no um, access to water. So there's like, that's your port, right? To being able to be self-sustaining. Yeah, so you would have to automatically start new trade negotiations that would mess up NAFTA. And if I know the states, they are like, yeah, you know how hard we had to work for NAFTA. So I think Albertans really sometimes live in a, in a, in a, an, like just as you would make fun of us for saying, give us our land back, you know, it would be the same kind of thing where it's like, there's no way a U.S. military and, you know, Canada would be A-OK -okay with part of the land that is arguably the most, um, you know, economic wealth generating to just be a, a part of NAFTA and a part of Canada. Well, that's, uh, it, it's 3.03. It's, uh, we're getting close to that hour, as I promised. But I, that is something that I would love to discuss on, uh, on another day. Uh, I, I, I think it's absolutely doable. And uh, uh, Albertans are, are stubborn enough to, to, uh, to come up with solutions. I, I think people, especially in the rest of Canada, underestimate Albertans all the time. And uh, when, once we are a resolved people, look out because uh, we are, you know, may, sometimes it's probably a bit of a curse for us, but uh, we are stubborn bullheaded people and we'll find a way to make it work. However, I, 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 I want to get back to briefly, we've covered a lot of stuff on the native issue that I didn't think we were, we were going to cover today. Um, and I want to come back to that maybe on another, another time. Um, but uh, I maybe, are you aware when you go to blacklivesmatter.com, I'm sure you've been there. Are you under, okay, so this will be an interesting question. I just thought of this. Coming from a, a native perspective, by the way, I find it interesting that you being uh, part native, part white, you identify as native. That's interesting. Um, but I would also ask, are you aware that Black Lives Matter Foundation is outwardly and outright Marxist? Yeah, so I actually investigated a bit about that as well as the funding. Um, and that's, you know, again, that's the American um, group. Uh, so I don't really quite understand why the American group is set up the way they do. They lobby apparently for the uh, Democratic Party as well. Um, but here, like what we do, what I've always spoke about, whether it's Native or Black issues, is that you only support local. So because we're here in Calgary, we don't reference that website. Like I reference the, um, the local, there's business uh, directory that's black and there's um, 
local initiatives that have their websites that I support uh, with some of the activists. And, you know, none of that, it, it was created organically as my uh, native Calgarian was created organically. So, um, you know, that's what I reference when I talk about going to different websites, even the um, defund.ca that's Canadian based. So um, as a Canadian, we don't, you know, obviously promote the U.S. website, but I, I have seen a lot of that uh, traffic. Um, you know, something really quick just to mention is that a book that I have is uh, about the CBC, and English-speaking Canada is the only place in the world that actually gets their news source from uh, a, a different country, and we're, we're that country, so it, it would be really interesting to see less influence from the States by um, Canadians, but maybe that's a little too liberal for this conversation. I, you know what? I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I, it drives me absolutely insane. And, and uh, let me give you an example. Uh, who was the conservative, uh, who, who was one of the leading conservatives uh, vying for the leadership of the conservative party? So we had uh, the black woman who was, her name is Leslie. We had Erin O'Toole who won. And then we also had Peter McKay, who's uh, an Easterner, Easterner. So somebody uh, did a, a uh, it was hilarious. I don't know if you've seen the interview, but it was, uh, it was an interview with, with Shear as the outgoing, outgoing conservative leader uh, with CBC. And the CBC uh, interviewer asked and blamed the conservative party for not promoting or not having enough information on this wonderful black woman who could have been uh, the leader of the conservative party and therefore could have been the next prime minister, the first elected prime minister woman. And it, that was somehow the conservatives fault for not promoting her more. She finished second place. And in fact, redneck Alberta put her first get that. So I just, I'm going to put it, get on my soapbox for a second and scream at any Easterner, Central Alberta, or not Central Alberta, Central Canadian who thinks that we're nothing but a bunch of rednecks out here. Funny how we were the ones voting for uh, the black woman to lead the conservative party. Like, get out of here. I, I'm so sick and tired of the of the stereotype that we're a bunch of rednecks out here that uh, uh, like to hop and we do like our pickup trucks, but regardless, uh, that has nothing to do with, with, uh, with, with anything. Anyhow, um, I love Shear's response and Shear's response was if you would stop uh, uh, showing and promoting U S politics on CBC like he said, he just turned the question around on her going, that's a great question. Why didn't the CBC promote her more? That, that's incredible. It's not up to me. It's not up to the conservatives to, to push her onto you. You are the journalists. Yep. So therefore, you being the journalists, why haven't you done more to promote this woman? Yep. No, I couldn't agree more. There was, uh, I, our media is so messed up, but I will point out right now the CBC is mainly run by Harper appointed uh, staff so I I just find it really interesting to watch conservatives fighting with conservatives because um, I, um, I I can't explain why there's so much division in the conservative party right now but I know Jason Kenney um, you know there's a school in the states that he sends anyone who's a staffer of his or that too 
And uh, Daniel Smith went to it actually, and she spoken openly about how, um, she, as a libertarian, she obviously disagreed with their pro um, uh, pro life stance. And um, she left the school that she was meant to be at for you know whatever the Harper years and the Kenny years. And uh, and she she talked about that you know U.S. influence within our Canadian uh, politic of, of the conservatives. And I think that a lot of our uh, conservatives here in Alberta need to know that, need to know that that's a lot of our information does come out of the States and that it's kind of a Republican uh, based conservative school that they, they do their teachings from. So, and I, this is where I, I don't know. Um, I, I've, I've stopped listening to CBC news uh, for 20 years. Um, 20 years ago, they were, uh, as far as I could tell, uh, the CBC uh, pushed liberal agenda. They were absolutely unequivocally pro-liberal, uh, and they are still today. Uh, the few times I turn them on, I just, I have to stop watching because I can't afford to keep buying TVs from throwing crap at my TV. Um, when you've got, uh, what's her name? The, the, the woman that runs the politics on CBC. She, I mean, she's got a crush on Trudeau and she doesn't even hide it. Uh, and, and she tweets out pro-liberal stuff all the time. And you are part of CBC doing a, like, I don't get it. Like I, and so uh, unfortunately, um, I, I was disappointed in Harper for a number of reasons, but one of them was that he didn't defund the CBC. And, oh God, can you and I just agree with another thing? Because sure. obviously you and I grew up together. All we ever heard was reform of the Senate and Harper made this promise for years, for decades, and he never did it. And I, I was like, how did a snotty nosed liberal son go in in third party status and do more for Senate reform than you who like went to the UFC, you, you know, openly talked about all of this and you never did it. I, I can't even begin to tell you how disappointed I am with Harper. And, and I know the answer to that, or I believe I have the answer to that. And that is the same reason why in 2006, Harper and Kenny here, everyone needs to understand as a conservative member and a conservative voter, uh, I, am, I am hammering my own. I am capable of doing that, as I find most conservatives are. Uh, not, to, not to throw light on the liberals who never say anything bad about Trudeau. However, uh, back in 2006, Kenny and Harper were the ones that changed the equalization formula to make Alberta pay more in order to buy votes in, 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 uh, in Eastern Canada. And it worked for 10 years. Yeah. And now, do you know what we paid in 2006? No, but I, I, I make fun of Kenny every single day because him and Harper did make that plan. And then he has the audacity to come here as the premier and pretend like he gave a shit about Alberta. Pardon my language. Um, and if you want, I can go on a rant about Trudeau, but you tell me the number first. <laughs> 1.7 billion we paid in equalization back in 2006. Uh, it was... It was um, uh, when Kenny introduced as the finance minister the equalization formula, um, uh, I don't know if you remember this. I don't. I was I was in I was in school at the time. I was back in school train. I'll call it training. Uh, and so politics was the last thing on my mind. But I do vaguely remember having um, our premier at the time. Uh, oh, I'm having a brain aneurysm here. What was his name? Might have been Ed Stelmack at that no, time. No, before Stelmack. Uh, Klein, Ralph Klein. 
So it was, it was at the very tail end of Ralph Klein's tenure, but Ralph Klein stood up and I remember Ralph Klein being really angry about something and saying something along the lines of over my dead body. He was livid. And it, I was talking to an economist friend of mine who was uh, on the podcast. I want to say it was, uh, uh, was that Dave, Dave Bjorkman? I think it was Dave Bjorkman that informed me that that had to do with Kenny changing the formula uh, back in 2006. And, and Ralph Klein knew what that meant for Alberta. And he was livid. He did not want to have anything to do with it. We paid last year $21 billion in equalization alone. That's just the equalization. Alberta sent $21 billion to Ottawa. In 2006, it was 1.7. We thought we were being ripped off in 2006. It's gone up 20-fold, almost 20-fold since then. And uh, I have no words to describe how angry I am. at the. And I agree with you 100%. Kenny, don't sit there and tell me how, how awesome you are and how you've got Alberta's back. Back in 2006, you did not have Alberta's back. You sold us out. So yep. anyway, your turn. Yeah, let's get started. So <laughs> what you need to know too, uh, especially on like Twitter and social media is that the liberals out East, um, they're just, you know, the irony is they call Alberta racist, but I mean, you were at least able to articulate that we are wards of the state. The Indian act is unfair. It's, um, you know, something that we're labeled racist, but then, you know, a lot of the support for the black um, candidate came out of Alberta. So at least you can do that. Unfortunately for my Eastern counterparts, a lot of them had no absolutely nothing about Indigenous people, our issues, uh, the Indian Act. And so when they, Jody Wilson-Rainbow was trying to do the honorable thing and talking about uh, the issues that she's seen with SNC-Lavalin and trying not to interfere as the Justice Minister, unfortunately the pushback that came from not just Trudeau and his inner staff but also um, the, what I call the minions, the army, the army of people that go onto social media and it doesn't matter what Trudeau has done or not done. And it's not even Trudeau. It's the liberals in, in general. Like, I, I don't know if there's some type of ceremony. I've been to how many conventions and I, I've never gone to the ceremony where you will never speak ill of the uh, liberals, but there are people that will never do it and they will find some way to twist whatever it is that was said or done into a positive spin for the Liberal Party. And obviously I'm not that person. Um, I joined the Liberal Party, uh, geez, in 2011, because I was just so, I, and I was really in the closet and scared to do that as an Albertan who was raised with the Conservatives. I tried to go to the EDA or the Electoral District Association and uh, you know try to speak to my uh, member of parliament who was Deepak O'Brien at the time, the late Deepak O'Brien. And I uh, couldn't get in the door. It was very uh, shut. So the uh, Liberal Party has something called the Indigenous Peoples Commission. So as soon as you get a membership with a political party um, in the Conservative Party, I don't know what it is, but in the Liberal Party, as a woman, I'm immediately part of the Women's Commission. And as an Indigenous person, I'm immediately a part of the Indigenous Peoples Commission. And every EDA has different chairs or presidents, whatever your constitution says. And um, you know, I immediately joined my electoral district association here in my my area and uh, tried to work with the Liberal Party the best I could on policy changes. And then Idle No More exploded. 
and I was a part of the Indigenous Peoples Commission with the Liberal Party at the time that that had happened and we were trying to fight Harper's policies on the environment and all sorts of things that he was instituting. So um, anyway, long story short, obviously I know many of the Liberals, whether they're elected MPs or whether they're staffers or whether they're, um, you know, volunteers and supporters and, you know, because of the ignorance of Indigenous issues, a, a lot of them um, just get freezed, they're scared, they don't know what to do, and then just default in siding with the Prime Minister, no matter how racist what they say is. And we've seen that for the whole world to see, it's public, um, on Twitter, on social media, the way the Liberals attacked Jody Wilson-Raybo, and then during the election we got to see how that um, played out. And I mean, this was somebody from the 2013 Montreal Convention. She was the co-chair. She wasn't even out as a liberal, but I mean, nobody co-chairs a liberal convention without being a liberal. So of course, when she um, started her campaign, the Indigenous Peoples Commission like did everything we could to support her. Here in Alberta, we're a numbered treaty. So there's like um, pre-colonial treaties, there's numbered treaties, and then there's modern treaties. And um, because we come from a number treaty, Treaty 7 here, a lot of the folks here were quite nervous about somebody from BC who doesn't have, um, who only has modern day treaties, being in charge of the Indigenous portfolio at all, and what that, what the ramifications of that could mean, and how we could lose some of our land and our status. So um, there was concern even about her joining the Liberal Party and then, and then running. But as it turns out, we got to see with SNC-Lavalin, the uh, racism that and sexism that she experienced and uh, and that really you know took the liberal support that was indigenous away because um, to them they're no different than the Harper uh, group really so um, so it, it is really hard to be in the posi position I'm in because there is no colonial party that really represents me and even Elizabeth May she's a sweet lady I've met her multiple times when she comes to Calgary um, she still doesn't have Indigenous education, so a lot of the language she uses and a lot of the concepts that she uses still is detrimental to Indigenous people. I, uh, I find Elizabeth May to be one of the most frustrating people I have ever uh, listened to. Um, so I don't, I don't do much. Uh, yeah. She is a, uh, I, I don't like to name call people, but she's crazy. Like she's a crazy old bat. And, uh, and I don't understand that woman at all. However, she could be very nice. She, you know, as a grandmother type, she could be a very, very nice person. But uh, yeah, she's crazy. Um, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Was this worth doing, Michelle? Oh, 100%. And I would come back anytime to try to uh, discuss it because it's, uh, I want solutions. And I know, um, you know, it, it's really painful to know you know, you talked about me identifying as native or what, and even though I'm half white, it's because in Canada's eyes under the Indian Act, it doesn't matter how white I am, I'm still an Indian under the Indian Act. And it's the systemic racism I experienced having my daughter. See, as a native um, giving birth to my daughter, it's an automatic red flag that my, um, you know, information is funneled through the federal government as, a proposed, as proposed to the provincial. So that's like you're automatically red flagged. And that, you know, that brings out the racism that you see in the healthcare system as well. That's a whole other conversation. But um, so it doesn't matter how white I am in the eyes of Canada, I'm still a, a, a native, so. Crazy. 
Uh, we didn't cover nearly what I wanted to. However, uh, it's, I think we're off to a good start. So um, I want to I want to thank you for your time, Michelle. Uh, it's always wonderful catching up with you, and uh, and I do want to continue the conversation. Um, maybe maybe what I'll do is I'll just get a hold of you and and see what we want to nail down next. Um, if if you're up for it, like I said, we've established that we are we are polar opposites on on many 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 issues. Uh, and uh, and I'd like to be able to have a conversation about any and all of those things. Uh, sure. And so let's uh, let's arrange for another time. And uh, and I want to thank you again for your your time here today. It's uh, it's been great. Honored, honored. Thank you. All right. End recording. Thank you.